Start. There we go. All right, so we have um, next couple things coming up due. I've got up here on the board for you. Uh, the second homework I have scheduled to be due on the 4th of October, which would be a week from today. So that'll be next week. We'll actually, we're finishing up the chapter on telescopes and we actually start today. I'll probably get to start on the sun, our first astronomical object that we get to look at and then we'll be picking up on finishing that up next week. So we should be good for October the 4th. And then break week, break week or break day, however it works for uh, that. And then the exam will be on the 11th the following week. So we don't meet, what is it, the 9th? I think Tuesday is the 9th. We do not meet. Um, but uh, the exam will then be on the 11th and I'll also be looking for at least one more solar observation. So I'll have you just, all I need you to do at that point is scan, copy, whatever your data sheet and turn in everything you've got so far. I'm looking for one more to give you credit, so one new one. So if you only made two the first time, that doesn't count towards this one. I'm looking for one new one. Just meant to keep you on pace with those. If you've only got two at this point, you are running behind because we're looking for 10 and we're getting to the halfway point of the semester. So you hopefully have a few more by then, but at least one more to give you credit for this just to make sure that you're not, not realizing it, not thinking about it until November. And then the exam will be on the 11th covering chapter 5. We already did. Chapter 6 we'll be finishing up today. And chapters 15 and 16 which are both on the sun. So looking at our first first regular astronomical object and trying to study that. The only thing we've done so far is we talked about the moon and its phases and orbits. We haven't really talked about any of the astronomical objects yet. And we're going to use the sun kind of as an introduction because our next unit is looking at the stars. And we use the sun as being one of the stars as a sort of a jump into that. So questions? It is on D2L. If you don't have a copy, see me after lab. I have copy. I do have, I think I gave them out maybe, I don't know if you, you might have, not, yeah, I might have missed it or been later that day. But I did give copies out. I believe I did, didn't, did I not? Okay. So, yeah. But just if you don't have one, see me right afterwards and I'll get you a copy. All right. So other questions? Otherwise, as I told them last time, because I know a bunch of people uh, got their exams back, if you didn't do well on the exam, again, your grade is actually high, eight points higher. Uh, don't shred them. I do use them for the final. I actually take questions off those exams. I try to focus your studying for the final by looking at the exams that we already took, more so than going back through lots of the other old material. So one of the things to do is to go through and try to find the correct answer, see if you can figure out what you did wrong so you have those because you will see some of those questions again. And also don't forget one of those gets dropped. So if you did poorly on one, uh, you've got a chance that, that your next grade will be better. Eventually one of the exam grades does get dropped at the end of the semester. All right. Otherwise, let's go ahead and start off with our picture for today. Uh, jumping a little bit ahead in the class for us, this is actually the Triangulum Galaxy. This is one of the nearer galaxies to us. The nearest large galaxy is Andromeda, about 2 million light years away. This is actually very close to Andromeda and in the same general direction of the sky. And it's about 3 million light years away, so it's close. Uh, relatively speaking, right, it's a million light years beyond, but you know, Relatively speaking, when you start talking about galaxies, we'll be talking about things that are hundreds of millions of light years or billions of light years away. These are galaxies that are in our own backyard, relatively speaking. So these are some of the nearest ones that we can actually study very carefully. We can see them a lot better than we can see others. Yeah? Just out of curiosity, when you say large galaxy, how big is the Milky Way compared to other galaxies? How big is our, our Milky Way is about a hundred and twenty some thousand light years across. So about a hundred thousand. That's a decent sized galaxy. Andromeda is very similar in size. This one's a little bit smaller. It might only be seventy or eighty thousand light years across. So it's still gigantic compared to any distance we ever think about. It's still tremendous. But when we look at actually the spiral galaxies, the ones that have these spiral arms, they're all very close in size. There isn't a big range. Some of them might be 50,000 light years. Some of them might be 150 or maybe 200,000 light. But if you think about it, it's only like a factor of four. 
There are other galaxies that range from little tiny things that are minuscule compared to this to massive ones that make this look like nothing in the same. So in terms of spiral galaxies, they're really all about the same size. You know, plus or minus. You know, comparing to other things, you know, all people are roughly the same size, right? Some are a few some are a foot taller, some are a, but there isn't a big giant difference. We don't have people that are 20 foot tall and we don't generally have people well, rarely cases, but you know, cases where people are two inches tall. It's called that small. You don't have that kind of range in, in people. We don't have that kind of range in these type of galaxies as well. Now, what we see in the galaxies, uh, spiral galaxies, and again, we'll talk about these in more detail coming up uh, into November when we start doing galaxies, is they have a very blue color to them. And they are very distinctly blue. The central portions are a little redder. But the rest of it does have a blue tinge to it, which comes from the stars that make up those spiral arms. The stars there are not like our sun. Our sun is a yellowish, middle colored, yellowish white star. Uh, these are actually much hotter and give off blue light. So they're significantly hotter than our sun. Our sun's about 6,000 degrees. These things can go up to 20, 30,000 degrees, a couple times hotter. And remember from spectra, right? the higher the temperature, the bluer, the shorter wavelength things give off. Well, one thing we'll also learn coming up over the next couple of weeks is that also these very big, massive stars that are this hot don't live very long. So what it means, they don't, they don't live a long time and that they might live 10 million years. Boy, that's forever, right? 10 million years, they're not going to age at all in our lifetimes. But compared to other stars, like our sun, that are 10 billion years, that's one one-thousandth of its lifetime. That's really tiny. I mean, that's a really small amount compared to something like our sun. And that means they had to have formed relatively recently, because if this galaxy formed like ours did about 10 billion years ago, those stars should be gone. They only live 10 million years. They're, they're all there, all went through their lives, right? So, you know. How many people born in the year 1000 are still around, right? No one, because a life does not last. People do not live that long that you're going to have someone here a thousand years later. Well, these galaxies, these stars wouldn't be around. So it tells us that at least these kind of galaxies are still forming stars today. They had to have formed within the last few million years. So they are still in the process of forming stars. And in fact, some of these pink regions are actually star forming regions as well. So again, we'll go over that in a lot more detail as we start talking about star formation once we get through the sun. Then we're going to jump out and talk about stars a little bit more. All right, questions? All righty, well, we were just about done with chapter 6, so we're going to finish that up. And in fact, I'd gone through, we just finished up radio telescopes, as I recall. So we will pick up with the last section of telescopes that I want to look at, which are everything else. So last time we looked at optical telescopes, visible telescopes on the ground that we could use to see visible light, the light that we see. That was one part of the spectrum right here that actually gets down to the surface of the Earth or very close to it. The other portion that we also looked at was radio telescopes. Radio waves can actually make it through the atmosphere and get down to the Earth. But if we want to look at the rest of the spectrum, if we want to look at things in gamma rays, x-rays, um, infrared and ultraviolet, we can't do it easily from the surface of the Earth. Because the blue portions here are how, where, where the atmosphere is transparent, so these regions the, the radio waves can transmit down to the Earth. Visible light can get down to the Earth. Some of the some sections of the infrared, it depends exactly. A little bit of the ultraviolet gets down. But if we want to look at anything else, we've got to get up above the atmosphere. So until about 60 years ago, we really didn't know a whole lot about the universe in X-rays or gamma rays or ultraviolet. Maybe a little bit in infrared, not even a whole lot then. We knew about the universe in visible light, and we knew about it in radio waves. So what's the big deal? Well, this is an example of one object. This is the Crab Nebula. This is a supernova, star that exploded about 1,000 years ago. 
And this is what we're used to seeing in visible light. But if we look at it in other wavelengths, there's some very big differences between it. It doesn't look exactly the same in every single wavelength. If we look at it in the ultraviolet or the infrared or the radio, uh, radio is an example. When you look at here in visible light, a lot of the material is pushed to the outer edges. When we look at it in radio, the red is the higher intensity, more radio waves. It's concentrated towards the center. Those are being produced by different things. So by looking at this, and then the x-rays, again, are also concentrated. It looks a lot smaller in x-rays than it does in visible or even in radio. And gamma rays are even more concentrated. So when we look at it with only one wavelength, we're, we're getting a distorted picture. We're only seeing part of the story. So we want to be able to look at things at across the electromagnetic spectrum, to be able to look at them at all wavelengths, because then we can put together a complete picture what's happening with the very highest energy, what's happening with the lower energy energies, and we can put together a complete picture. Now, we know what the Crab Nebula is. The star, the star at this location was seen to explode and recorded to have exploded in records going back to 1054, which is when it was seen here on Earth. But there are other objects that we don't necessarily know about when you get even further out. We don't know a lot about. So here, while we have some idea of what might be going on, there are other objects where it's even more important. So let's look at a few of these into how we can observe some of these different wavelengths. Not quite a getting up into space yet, uh, but this is Sophia. is actually a NASA airplane that is used to observe infrared. There's an infrared telescope kept in here, and you can't see the section, but the, I think it's the one section back here that actually can open up when it's up cruising. Very, very high altitudes, you know, far above where generally commercial flights would fly. And the whole idea is that you're getting above the water in the atmosphere. Water is what absorbs the infrared radiation. So infrared radiation gets, really, gets through really well if there's no water vapor around. So when it's a nice humid day, water vapor, gets, water vapor absorbs all of the infrared radiation. Uh, but if you get up above the water in the atmosphere, then you can still detect it. It's not, detect, it's not absorbed really high up like some of the other wavelengths. So we can use things like balloons, we can use aircraft, I said Sophia here, or you can use spacecraft. You can also use spacecraft getting it up above the atmosphere altogether. So that allows you to really be able to see now another part of the spectrum. So this is one of the earliest ones that was added after visible, after radio. We were able to add infrared as one of the things that we could observe here from the Earth. But we could better observe it from space. Because some of, the, some of the infrared was still blocked. It helped a lot. A lot more was able to be observed when you were getting up high in the atmosphere. But even when there's some atmosphere, some parts of it, some wavelengths were blocked. So we wanted to put things up into space because then you get, you don't have any atmosphere to deal with. You don't have any atmospheric distortions. You don't have any turbulence, right, shaking you. Flown in a plane, right, you hit pocket of turbulence. That's not very good when you're trying to point at an astronomical object and your plane starts shaking. Right? Now your telescope's going to wobble a little bit and you're going to have issues uh, with the observations. You're going to blur out your images. So it's great for many things. It's a lot cheaper. A lot cheaper to launch a plane than it is to launch a satellite into space. But there are some disadvantages to it as well. If we do put something out in space, uh, one of the difficulties is that with infrared, one of the problems is, this is the um, IRAS satellite, infrared astronomical satellite, uh, which could observe in the, observes in the infrared. It's out in space. But one of the problems with infrared detectors is that they have to be kept really, really cold. And I'm not just mean, you know, freezing temperatures. I mean liquid nitrogen temperatures to keep them really cold. Why? Remember, right, if we put on infrared goggles, turn off all the lights, we're all glowing. We're all giving off infrared radiation. Anything that has a temperature, you know, the tables, the walls, the screen, everything is giving off infrared radiation, including your infrared detector. If it's giving off infrared radiation and is trying to detect radiation, 
It would be like the little CCD chip in your camera glowing brightly in visible light. You wouldn't get many pictures. If it was giving off all this visible light glowing, you wouldn't be able to see anything because it would overwhelm the detector. Same thing happens in infrared. If your detector is giving off what it's trying to detect, it's going to wash out your image. You're not going to be able to see anything. So in order to do that, what do we do? We hypercool them down to close to absolute zero as we can so they're giving off hardly any radiation. You might think that's easy out in space because it's so cold. But don't forget, you do have the sun there too. So sun is heating things up. So they still need like liquid nitrogen to be able to cool the detectors, keep them very, very cold so that they're not giving off the radiation. They're not giving off infrared radiation, which is what we're trying to detect from space. It's the only place we really have to worry about this is infrared. Doesn't matter whether that's one on, that could be on Earth. That's not just a problem within space, even though I've got a spacecraft up here when I'm talking about it. It also means if we put one on a high mountaintop here on Earth or on Sophia, you know, they all have to be cooled because it's just the temperature of that, of that detector that has to be kept really, really cold. So, infrared is one example. Uh, probably the best known telescope is the Hubble. Hubble Space Telescope was launched in 1990. So if you think about it, that's coming up on its 30-year anniversary. That's been up there. I mean, that was not how long it was meant to survive originally. It's been doing great, uh, going a lot longer. They got a lot more out of it, and pretty good because it did cost like a billion dollars to get it setting up there. And that was launched in 1990, so that's a billion 1990 uh, dollars. It's not a very big telescope. We talked about all those gigantic telescopes last time. And I talk about things with 8 meters and 10 meters and 12 meters. And what do we go up to, 30-some meter mirrors? This one's only 2. 2 meters, so that's what? Uh, 2 meters, about 2.5 meters, about 2.5 yards. We'd be talking about 6, 7, 8 feet across. So I mean, it's big, but it's not tremendous compared to those other ones. Why does it do so well? Well, it's up above the atmosphere. It doesn't have to worry about looking through the atmosphere. And remember the blurring effects. The atmosphere shimmers, causes stars to twinkle. That's all an atmospheric effect. So if Hubble is up above the atmosphere, it can get perfect crystal clear images because it never looks through the atmosphere. It also has the advantage of being able to observe some of the infrared and ultraviolet. They get blocked down here on Earth. You can't see the infrared very easily. You can't see the ultraviolet. But the nearer portions, the portions close to the visible spectrum, really just need telescopes much like any other. The, the, the mirror that reflects visible light will reflect infrared light, will reflect ultraviolet light. So this can actually be used, uh, expanded to use the infrared and the ultraviolet that you couldn't for a, uh, for a telescope on the ground. Now, back when Hubble was first launched, uh, I mean, big excitement getting the telescope up there in low Earth orbit, able to actually get above the atmosphere. And the first images it sent back were horrible. No better than, not really horrible, but no better than anything on the ground. And there was a problem uh, in the shape of the mirror. The shape of the mirror was ground incorrectly. So, very slightly, it was very tiny bit off, but that little tiny bit makes all the difference. An astronomical mirror has to be perfectly smooth, perfectly ground to the correct shape. And it was just slightly off. And fortunately, we're able to send up a craft to be able to fix it. Send up the space shuttle, we're able to give it a pair of glasses. Right? All you knew, we, knew we found out exactly what went wrong, and we could then correct for it. So just like you know, if doctor sees my eyes are wrong, gives me a pair of glasses that correct them, and now I can see, I can see fine. We could do the same thing. Um, as I recall, it was actually one of those issues that has to do with metric and English units. The two different th people were using different sets of units, and there was an issue in the conversion, and it, it made that minuscule difference. And it wasn't much. I mean, it's not like the mirror was way out of shape. We would have figured that out. It was just very, very close. I mean, we're talking, you know, less than millimeter, millimeters or less. It was very, very tiny amount. Yeah. You said it was eight feet across. About eight feet. Yeah. How long is it? It's a circle. So that a diameter of eight feet. How long is this? Yeah, how long, yeah. Oh, gosh, that is. How long is it? It is the exact diameter of the space shuttle bay. <laughs> and I don't know how big that is off the top of my head. 
So if you've ever seen the space shuttles, I mean, it, this fit, this was designed with the space shuttle in mind. It fit just in the cargo bay of the space shuttle. I don't remember how big that is. I'd have to look it up to check the exact length of it. But it's not gigantic. It's not like hundreds of meters or anything long. Maybe seven it could be something similar to that or a little bit bigger, something similar to that, yeah. Yeah, and then I'll get you over there. To replace it? Actually, I'll be talking about that in a minute. There is a replacement that is scheduled to launch in a couple of years. So we are going to be replacing it because it is, the good thing about it is that up through about 2008, 2009 it was serviced. So in, the instruments that it was launched with in 1990 are not the instruments it has today. The instruments have been replaced. Now they're still 10 years old now because we don't have any way to get to it anymore. Space shuttle fleet has been retired, so there's no actual way to get up to it anymore. I'm sorry, yeah? Uh, I was just going to say I, I knew that they were, like, they were getting ready to launch. Yeah, and I think I have, a, I have something on the James Webb telescope I'll be talking about in a minute, which, is, which was supposed to launch like next month or something, and now it's been pushed off a couple of years. But. It is, it is, there is another one that is, there is another one that is coming as a replacement because it is reaching, you know, if it, if something fails on it completely, it's done. I mean, there's nothing else we can do to get up there and save it or anything like that. I'm to get, how do we get the images? They're, they're sent back, radio waves, just transmit them back down to the earth like any, like a communication satellite. So they're just sent, the images are taken digitally, sent back down uh, to the earth. Now it will eventually, oops, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say when you said another one's going up there. Now, with, yep. do they have the old stuff with anything that's space, you know, stuff? Do mm -hmm. they leave the old stuff up there or do we always bring the old stuff back? I mean, not just the telescope, any kind of space, um, whatever. Do they just leave it up there? A combination. Or, a combination of things. Really, right now, any, uh, it hasn't been the case, but any satellite that is put up in space is supposed to have a exit plan. What are we going to do with it when it's done? Some of them in really high orbits don't matter. If they're up in a high, really high orbit well above the Earth, they're never going to bother us. This is, in a very, this is only a couple hundred miles above the Earth's surface. Means that eventually it will come back down. It's the atmosphere, the, the edge of the Earth's atmosphere varies and it may, it will eventually drag it down and it will crash down to Earth. So at some point when it fails, they have a plan that it's got enough fuel and they will direct it to a controlled re-entry, crash it down in the Pacific Ocean or something. Isn't that potentially dangerous though? They don't know where it's going to crash down. But that's the whole idea. You have to keep, you keep enough fuel planned so that you can bring it down where you want it. So you're going to crash it. You're going to say, OK, we're going to bring it in here so it comes down into the Pacific Ocean, much like we brought the Apollo astronauts down. And we said they didn't just crash on land, because that would have been, been horrible if they'd hit land. Oh, so but they, they never just wait for it to just no. come down on They have. Ocean. They have. If you remember Skylab, on, well, probably for most of you, Skylab back in the 1970s did crash. It was uncontrolled, and it actually crashed into the Indian Ocean in Western Australia. Very fortunately, Western Australia is not very heavily populated. That it hit over a pop, and we never knew. We, it's, we know it's coming, we know it's coming, but there was no way to get to it, to it. So it has happened. Some satellites do come down, but anything we put up now either has to have a plan to bring it back down safely or be flimsy enough that it just burns up in the atmosphere. So some small satellites will just burn up in the atmosphere and never make it down. This one won't. That mirror will survive and make it through to Earth. Yeah. Yes, sorry. It'll send back, it sends back uh, yeah, photos. In fact, a lot, of the, probably a lot of the photos that we've looked at are, uh, some of them at least, that we've looked at are from Hubble. So we do get some. Yeah? Some of its most important things that it's brought back, maybe? I'm sorry, some of the. Like, um, like what has it observed that has been like? Um, some of the most interesting, I mean, it's, it's observed everything from the planets. It's observed things, it can't observe the sun. Sun's way too bright for it. And that's actually what this is part of a sun shield to protect it from sunlight getting in there. Uh, but it can observe the planets. It's observed stars and clusters and nebulae and galaxies. Yeah, it's been up there a long time. And we'll be look, a lot of the pictures that we'll look at when we get out to galaxies really come from Hubble. Yeah, you can go on to Hubble site and HubbleSite.org has a whole bunch of pictures. You can get all sorts of stuff. Is it, uh, is it just still photos or is it video too? Or it's, it, it would be just photos. Just still photos. Yeah, there's not really anything video that you can 
take in this. I mean, for most of the objects you're looking at, you have to leave the lens open a long enough time. It's not really a, a video like we think of videos here. It's a long image, long exposure image because some of the exposures it takes might take hours, minutes, hours of looking at the same part of the sky. So do you tell it what, to, what yeah. you want to look at? Yep, it's programmed. You send up a program schedule, observe this, 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 radio the data back to Earth, here's the next set, do that, and just keep going back and forth. Good. Others? Alrighty. Well, let's go ahead and look at some of the other telescopes. Uh, these are a couple of the high energy ones. We looked at the lower energy ones. But if we really want to look at ultraviolet X-ray or gamma rays, there's not much we can do from the Earth. So there were some. There was the International uh, Ultraviolet Explorer, uh, which was sent up in the 1970s to actually observe ultraviolet radiation from space. The Chandra X-ray Observatory launched in 99, still going. And the Fermi Gamma Ray Telescope, 2008, still going. So these are ones that, again, are launched up above the atmosphere to be able to study the longer wavelengths, that we, the shorter wavelengths that we want to look at. And these ones, you've really got to be up above the atmosphere to be able to see anything. So when we put those up, we try to get everything up above. We have to get them far above the atmosphere and then be able to look. These are much smaller. They're not as big. Hubble's telescope is one of the more massive things up at, other than the space station, which is significantly bigger than that. Uh, these, are a these are much smaller. You don't need as large of a telescope. But the big one that's coming, and I know we'd mentioned this, is the James Webb Telescope. And that's, that launch date is actually not correct. I didn't update it on this slide, I noticed. Uh, but the James Webb Telescope was originally scheduled for launch next year. I think it's been pushed back another year or two now. Um, it's actually mostly built. Most of it has been put together. Uh, but still getting the launch ready for it, getting everything approved and set. Uh, this is going to be a much bigger mirror than Hubble. Hubble was two meters. This is actually a six and a half meter telescope. If you look at the design of the mirror, we saw telescopes like that here on Earth where they're designed. They're not one big mirror. They're actually bits and pieces, little hexagons honeycombed together to make a much larger mirror. It's a lot less expensive to be able to do that. Uh, this one will actually observe, it can't observe all of visible light. It's designed more as an infrared telescope. It can see the red and orange part of the spectrum and infrared light. But it's going to be, again, two and a half times the size of Hubble. It means it can see a lot, a lot more detail. It'll be able to see a lot more than Hubble was ever able to. Uh, this is also going into a different orbit. This isn't going to orbit around the Earth. It's actually going into a solar orbit, and it's going to be out beyond the moon. So just like you know, Hubble is essentially un unrepairable right now, if something goes wrong with it, this is another one. Once it's out there, it's kind of on its own. It's going to be a million, million miles or something from the Earth, which is a couple times the moon's distance. So it's not going to be out where the other planets are, but it's going to be out, the, out there. Yes? They'll leave Hubble there as long as they can keep it going. At some point, again, there'll be some, some eventually, anything, something is any mechanical equipment, it's eventually going to fail. But yeah, I don't, there's not, I don't think, as far as I know, there's not any plan to say, oh, this is up there, we don't need Hubble anymore. Because they're complementary. If they can overlap for a year or two years or 10 years, that's great. So the more we can get out of it, the better. Yes? So this one will just see detail better, or it will be able to see It'll be able to see more detail. It'll be able to see things that are fainter, many times fainter. It'll be able to see uh, a lot more. It'll be able to resolve things better, see finer detail too, because it's bigger. So it's going. Yeah, well, because it'll be able to see fainter objects. Yeah. It's big. Not just it's beyond the moon, but because it is a bigger telescope. It's got more light collecting area. It's got a bigger area to collect that light, so it can see things that are five, ten times fainter than what Hubble could. So things that would have been invisible to Hubble will actually be seen by this telescope. Other? All right. Well, we'll finish up here. And again, what we've talked about, that we can only get visible and radio waves, are really the only things we can efficiently observe from the Earth. Um, space telescopes give us a new view on looking at things like the infrared, the ultraviolet, X-rays, gamma rays, all of that that we can, that we can see. 
Um, but they, and, they don't, and they also do not have to look through the Earth's atmosphere. And we talked about future telescopes. Um, James Webb isn't the only one. There are other ones that are planned as well. So there will be other ultraviolet and infrared telescopes that are planned to be able to monitor uh, all the different wavelengths. All right, questions? Alrighty. Well, what I'm going to do is we'll go ahead and I'm going to get started on the next chapter. Now we jump. We went from, I think it was chapter 6, and now we jump to chapter 15. I will come back. I want to see how things are going before I do for sure. I will come back and do at least one uh, lecture talking about the planets because I'm supposed to cover the planets to some extent here. But I'm not going to jump and do it next because I don't want to end up that putting us all way, way behind. So you may get that at the end of the semester. So I'll see how everything's going. But I will work something in. I have one where I talk about, which may be interesting since everybody was interested in this one. We had some good questions. Um, we may have one at the end where I talk about the exploration of the solar system. It's one lecture that I've made up. So I talk about all the visits, all the visits we've done to all the different planets and asteroids and comets, which is kind of interesting. So what I want to talk about now, our first astronomical object, we're a month into the class, we finally got to a real astronomical object to talk to. But you've got to get through all that background kind of stuff first. And we're going to talk about the sun. The sun essentially is the solar system. 99.8% of the mass of the solar system is the sun. That's it. So I mean, essentially, the planets, the asteroids, comets, any other debris in the solar system is two-tenths of a percent of the mass. And most of that two-tenths is Jupiter. So really, the rest of us is just the little debris around the sun. The sun is almost all of the mass of the solar system. So what I'm going to talk about here, first of all, I'm going to go through this chapter, chapter 15, which we'll get started on today and finish up on Tuesday, talks about the structure. What is the sun like? Um, the different uh, features of it. What can we see? And then next time. At the next chapter, we come to the interior. What is the interior of the sun like? And how does the sun produce its energy? So I'm going to vaguely allude to that here, but I'm not going to go into any great detail on it. So start off there with a nice picture of the sun. I gave you a bunch of numbers here for a reason. Doesn't mean memorize them, please. I'm not going to expect you to memorize these. So you don't even have to write them down on your key point sheets. I'm not going to ask you any of these big, long numbers uh, that are there. But I give them to you to give you an idea of the size. Um, but usually what we use and what we're going to use for other stars is I'm not going to give you numbers. I'm not going to tell you a mass in grams because 10 to the th writing a 2 and 33 zeros is not a number that our minds can wrap themselves around. I can't imagine what that number means. So instead, we define that to be 1. That mass is 1 solar mass. So if I said another star was 4 times 10 to the 33rd grams, big deal. But if I say it's two solar masses, oh, it's twice as big as the sun. So we still can't comprehend how big the sun is, but OK, compared to the sun, this is a bigger star. Or if it was 1 times 10 to the 33rd, it might be half the size of the sun. It would be half of a solar mass. So we use solar units for the most part for these. So the mass, the luminosity, again, it's a big number of watts, or it's one solar luminosity. Much easier. Our, our, our minds can wrap around ones and tens and hundreds. We can, we can imagine those. But when we get to these very large numbers, we really can't. Uh, radius, one solar radius. So how big is it? We compare it to the sun. Uh, the other ones that aren't, the one that is it is the temperature. And we don't say one solar temperature. We give that actually in uh, kelvins about close to 6,000 degrees. That's the surface temperature of the sun. So you know, why is it dangerous to look at the sun? Well, you're looking at something that is thousands of degrees and emitting a lot of energy. A lot of energy. And that's what can burn itself into your eye. Um, so again, luminosity, one solar luminosity radius, those are ones that we will use in the next couple chapters when we get to, when we finish 15 and 16, we'll use those as comparisons when we talk about other stars. We'll say it's so many times larger or smaller than the sun. And it gives you a much better basis for comparison. The other numbers that I have down here are the density. How dense is the star? Uh, density of water is 1 gram per cubic centimeter. The sun is not that much denser than water overall. If you take the total mass, 
here. Divide it by the volume from the radius. You can calculate the volume and you'll find out that it's a little, only a little over a gram per cubic centimeter. That varies depending on where you are in the sun. If you're in the center, it's a lot denser than that. It's hundreds of times the density of water. On the very surface, it's hardly any. It's just a, it's just a very hot gas. So it's very low density, just like our atmosphere would have a density much lower than water. Um, so that's one that we can look at there. And then the rotational period is about 25 days. If you're at the equator, I didn't put it on there, but if you're at the pole, it's about 35 days. How do you do that? Rotate 25 days here, but if you're up here, it's 35 days. That would be like being at the equator on the Earth and having a day be 24 hours and being up at the North Pole and having a day be 12 hours, 30 hours, 34 hours or something. The sun isn't a solid. And we get used to think, we talk about things like the Earth, the Moon, which are solid bodies. Right? A ball, if I rotate a ball, it doesn't matter where I am on the ball, it takes the same amount of time for any point to make a, little, make a circle. But this is not. This is actually a ball of gas. And a ball of gas undergoes um, what we call differential rotation, meaning it rotates faster at the equator and slower at the poles. So it'll rotate here about every 24 days and about here about every 35 days. And it varies. It's not that it just changes there and there. It, it goes slower and slower as you go further up. So it doesn't rotate like a solid because it isn't. If we actually look at the planets, the other stars would do the same thing. It's not something special about our sun. Any star would do this. Some of the planets do this. Gaseous planets like Jupiter or Saturn don't rotate at one speed because they're not a solid object. They are gaseous. They can rotate. You know, gases can rotate at different speeds. They're not all stuck together like a solid ball. So what is the sun made up of? Well, we can get, figure that out by its spectrum. Remember, if we take a spectrum of a star, we get those spectral lines. And there are ways to be able to determine abundances, how much of each element there are. I've given you two columns here. Again, I'm not going to test you on the numbers. So I'm not going to say how much percent. I do, I do think that you should know that hydrogen and helium dominate. And in fact, if you count atoms and you pick 100 atoms out of the sun at random, I'm sorry, 1,000 atoms out of the sun at random, 999 of them will be either hydrogen or helium. And the other one will be one of, one of these. Out of, a thou, out of every thousand atoms in the sun. In other words, the sun is almost all hydrogen and helium. The other stuff, just like we're the debris in the solar system, the other stuff is the little bit of contaminants within the sun. The carbon, the nitrogen, the oxygen, silicon, magnesium, iron. All that stuff is there, but it's very, very small amounts. The sun is completely dominated by hydrogen and helium. Sounds strange, and it actually was. This is, we haven't only known this for, gosh, it's been, it hasn't even been 100 years. Yeah, I did put her year up there. Uh, and in fact, it was found by uh, a graduate student working on her thesis. Uh, Cecilia Payne Gapashkin did this, and she had calculations to determine the abundances. You can look at the strengths of the lines and the temperatures that we know, and you can go, there's calculations that we're not going to go through here, but you can do calculations to say, oh, that means there's this much hydrogen, or there's this much helium, or there's this much oxygen. And she found that the sun was made up of hydrogen back in 1925. And it was unbelievable. I and mean, people, why is the sun made up of something so much different than what everything else is made of? I mean, again, it's still that Earth-centered bias that goes back to Aristotle. Well, Earth is typical, right? We know it's not now, but even, even 100 years ago, well, the Earth should be typical. The stars aren't going to be made up of anything very different. So it's only been 100 years that we've really known that. And actually, when she did her thesis, she had to put in a statement that said, you know, these can't possibly be right. They had to have her, had her put in a statement in that said they can't possibly. Turns out she was completely right. Her calculations were perfect. Her you know, calculations of what things are made up of were correct. But it was not something that even, you know, that's less than 100 years ago, was known. 100 years ago, we didn't know what the stars were made up of. Now we do. I can tell you and give you great detail, because we've measured them all in great detail now. But just 100 years ago, we didn't know this. Now the other column here just does it by mass. So this is by the total number of atoms, if you just count atoms. If you actually figure out masses, it's a little bit different. And that just means that hydrogen is a really light atom. So even though it's so light, it's still 70% of the mass of the sun. I mean, that's a lot of hydrogen. Hydrogen is very light. 
Hydrogen has a weight of one unit, one atomic unit. Iron uh, has a weight of like 54, am I thinking correct? Something like that. So every hydrogen atom is 50 times the mass, 50 sometimes the mass of each hydrogen. So iron, 50 times the mass. You need 50 hydrogen atoms to make up one iron atom, 50 some. So its mass, that's why these numbers would then be, would tend to be a little bit higher generally, um, that there's a little bit more. Um, that one, something seems off in that one. I'll have to check that. But uh, you know, generally, there, the mass-wise, it's still 98.1% of the mass of the sun is hydrogen or helium. Now again, that sounds strange to us here on Earth because we're not used to things being made up of hydrogen or helium. Right? There's hydrogen here. You've got hydrogen in water, and there's some hydrogen here on Earth. Um, we have some helium, right? We use it to fill up balloons. But it's not a big part of what the Earth is made up of. But it is what the universe is made up of. So when we actually now know that this really isn't unusual, it's the Earth that's unusual. We're the one that's unusual. We're only made up of these oddball elements here. We're made up of the carbons and the silicons and the irons that make up the Earth. The sun is actually more typical. And the stars, if I told you the abundances of the stars, what they're made up of, it's right there. It's essentially the same. Just about every star we look at will be made up of the same general things. These proportions might change a little bit. But overall, it's pretty safe to say that for any star, 99.9% you know, .9 of it is hydrogen and helium. Anything else that we look at in space. All righty, let's see. So let's look at the interior uh, briefly here. Again, I'm going to come back. The next chapter actually goes over the interior in much more detail. But I wanted to at least give you a breakdown of what the interior of the sun is like. So there are three main areas to the interior. In the next chapter, we'll talk about the core. That's where all the energy is produced. The small central region we call the core is where all the energy is being produced. The rest of the sun. No energy is being produced here or here or on the outer layers. There's no energy being produced. It's a transport mechanism. All it serves to do is to take energy from down here in the core and transport it to the surface where we get to see it. So the core is where all of that is going on, where nuclear fusion is going on. And we'll talk about that again uh, in the next chapter, smashing hydrogen atoms into helium atoms and making heavier elements. That's what's going on in the sun right now. So that is what is happening down there. And that's where all the energy is coming from. But then we've got to get it out there because you have, not, you have all this energy and you've got all this layers and mass on top of it. You've got to get that energy out. And energy can be transported by three different methods. You've probably gone through in another science class at some point in high school. Right? Convection, conduction, and radiation. Hopefully they sound familiar. You've probably talked about them at some point in the past. Well, the sun uses two of those. The sun uses radiation. right? You can feel the heat from the sun. Radiation transferring by photons of light. That's what happens very close to the core. There is a radiative zone where the photons just travel out from in here to slowly out towards this next area. The other one that is used is convection. When you get a little bit further out, it gets too dense for the material to be able, for the light to be able to travel through. So what does it do? It heats up the bottom layer, and then you start convection cells. Right? You heat up something, it moves, the, the bubble of heat rises, gets to the surface, releases its energy, cools off, and goes back down. So you'll get convection cells that go and transport the energy up to the surface, where they release it, where it again travels by radiation to the Earth. The photons come from the surface of the sun to the Earth. Temperature-wise, I told you the sun was about 6,000 degrees. That's the surface temperature. Actually, down at the core, it's about 15 million. Has to be that hot. If it's any much cooler than that, you can't undergo nuclear fusion, and the sun would not be a star. Anything much smaller than that, you would not be able to fuse hydrogen to helium. You need really, really high temperatures. Now, what I want to look at more in this section is the outer layers. So we'll come back to the inner layers later on. But what are the outer layers? Well, this is what we see. The we call that the photosphere of the sun. So we see the disk of the sun. We might see some sunspots on it. 
And it is what gets rid of the energy that is generated below. There's nothing. The sun is not on fire. It's just a hot ball of gas. That's thousands of degrees. It's not on fire or burning. It might look like a big fire, but it's not. There's no burning going on right? because there's no oxygen. Right? In order to burn something, if I want to burn a piece of wood or a piece of paper, it's combustion with oxygen in the atmosphere that does that. Well, sun is all hydrogen and helium. If you try to burn hydrogen all by itself, nothing happens. Hydrogen won't just burn unless there is oxygen around it. If you put hydrogen in and evacuate all the atmosphere around it, you can light hydrogen on fire all you want. There's nothing to combust it with. So it's just going to stay hydrogen. So it's the oxygen that will then that would then cause fire. So it's just hot. It is really just like the hot filament of a light bulb. Heated up to thousands of degrees, but that's all it is. It's just hot gas that has been heated from the interior. And that's what we're that's what we're seeing is that. It's not a solid surface. There's no place to ever go land on the sun. Right? Ignore the fact that nothing we know of will stand up to 6,000 degree temperatures. Right? Even take your spacecraft there, it's going to vaporize anyway. But there's no place to land. Uh, if you tried to land on, if you tried, if you had something that could stand up to that kind of temperatures, you'd reach the surface of the sun and you'd just slowly sink down. It just gets denser and denser and denser as you get further in. But it's a gas all the way through. Even though the density is many times the density of lead at the center, it's so hot that it's still gaseous. Everything's still moving around just like a gas because of the very high temperatures. Um, one thing we do see on it when we look at the surface is what we call granulation. When we look at the surface, if we look at a wide picture, you get this. When you look at a close-up picture, you actually see that the sun is divided into these little pockets. This is one of the evidence, the piece of evidence. You know, I've told you that what's going on in the interior of the sun. I told you radiation and convection for transporting energy. Well, how do we know that? We can't see inside the sun, right? Well, we can see the surface of the sun, and if it's traveling by convection, that means there's hot things coming up and cool things going down, which means you'd have hotter areas which are brighter and cooler areas which are darker. So the idea that there is convection in this, inside the sun makes a scientific prediction. It says you should see granulation like this. You should see these dark, bright areas are pockets where, sun, where sunlight is coming up, heat is coming up from below. The cooler areas are areas where light is sink, sinking down. To put it to scale, you know, there's North America. So you have these granules are the size of you know, Texas or put a couple other states together. They're really large things. They're not just little tiny granules. They're actually big enough that we can see them. Oh, Let's see how we're doing. Maybe we can get through the layers of the atmosphere and then we'll pick up with the rest of it next time uh, so we have time to do lab. Uh, chromosphere is the next layer up there. I should have gone back. Photosphere. Photo for light, it's the sphere of light. That's where all the light from the sun comes from. So when you go out and look at the sun, you watch a sunrise, you watch a sunset, you're seeing the photosphere of the sun. The chromosphere is invisible to you. It's there. It's out beyond that. It's like the atmosphere of the sun. But it's not something you can see except during an eclipse. So it's fainter. That's why we don't see it, because it's a lot fainter. And, but it is also hotter. It goes up to about 10,000 degrees. So surface of the sun, about 6,000, go up a little higher. It actually increases the temperature. It goes up to 10,000 degrees, meaning 10,000 degrees, you're giving out a lot of ultraviolet light. Remember, higher temperature, shorter wavelength. The visible surface of the sun gives off visible light. Right? That's what our eyes have adapted to over millions of years. However, when you get up higher in the atmosphere, it heats up in the solar atmosphere, and it's giving off ultraviolet light. So ultraviolet radiation that you can then see. Again, the, like the photosphere was the sphere of light, this is the sphere of color. So chromos for color. And we get this red color because that ultraviolet light excites hydrogen and causes it to glow. And I showed you those little glowing pink regions. I think I mentioned them in the first picture. It's the same kind of thing going here. You excite the hydrogen gas in the atmosphere, and it gives off a distinct red color of light. Then the temperature rises sharply. Right? Already went from 
6,000 to 10,000 degrees. It's going to jump quickly. There's a transition region right after the chromosphere out to the corona. Now the corona is one thing we can see. Chromosphere you can sometimes see in an eclipse, uh, but the corona you can generally see in an eclipse as well. This is the outermost layer of the solar atmosphere, which we can see during an eclipse, but the temperature is shot up to a million degrees. There's no nuclear reactions going on there. Two things are too low. First of all, the temperature still has to be closer to 10 million degrees to get nuclear reactions. But you also have to have high density. You've got to have those particles really close together. Just random hydrogen atoms going around are not going to collide together and fuse. So you have very few of them out there. It's very low density region. So you're not going to have any uh, nuclear reactions because of that. But it is a very, very high temperature. Millions of degrees, but it doesn't have a lot of heat. Right? There's a difference between temperature and heat. Temperature is how fast particles are moving. Faster particles are moving, the higher the temperature. Heat depends on how many particles you have and how much heat is contained there. Uh, example for this would be uh, turning on an oven to 400 degrees and having a pot of water boiling on the top. Which one do you want to put your hand in for 10 seconds? Right? Probably neither, but if you have to, you put your hand, may probably put your hand in the oven because it's going to be hot, but you can tolerate even though it's twice as hot because boiling water is 200 degrees. But there's not, so even though the temperature is twice as much, it's not as bad as sticking your hand in boiling water, which you're not going to make. Don't try it. You're not going to make it for 10 seconds. So don't even try it, please. But it's, it's the heat content. Even though the temperature is half the temperature, you've got a lot more particles. Water is denser than air. So you've got a lot more heat content even though the temperature is low. Same thing with the solar, solar atmosphere. There's a lot more heat content in the surface of the sun than there is in the corona. Even though the temperature is much higher, it just means that those particles are moving, along, moving around a lot faster. And it also means we can start looking for it in x-rays. So let me do the solar wind next time, because I have a couple slides on that. I don't want to go ahead and start on that. So I'll do the solar wind, and then we'll finish up 15 and go on to 16 on Tuesday. Questions? Alrighty. Yeah. Let's go ahead and